We are talking about Psalm 86. This will be our last psalm we're going to look at for the summer. Um, we're going to start into a uh, little short series over the next few weeks talking about our church covenant and what it means to be a part of our church. It's called My Tribe, and that, so that starts next week. So today we're looking at Psalm 86. There once was a man who couldn't find the right position to pray. He tried kneeling, but he learned really quickly that it hurt his knees, old knees, old hips. Plus, it made his pants all wrinkly, and he didn't think that was becoming of him. He tried standing, but as you expect, he got more and more tired standing. He finally decided to sit and pray, and he felt like it was just not very reverential. And besides, he started to fall asleep. So he said, I'm going to go for a walk. He went for a walk, and he tried praying, but he was getting distracted by all the birds and the airplanes and the clouds that looked like different things, and then he fell into an open well. And then he found the posture to pray and pray and pray some more. And wow, did he pray. Sometimes we wait until bad things happen to pray. That's usually when we for sure get 100% prayer in the room is when bad things are happening. But there's more to it than that. There's more to prayer than that. So today we're going to look at a prayer of David. See, when we look at prayer, we think, oh yeah, it's something I should do. And we get this kind of guilt feeling of, oh yeah, I should do it. It should be something that just comes natural, but it kind of seems imposing. It seems like a drag. It seems like something that we have to check off a list instead of being life-giving. It's kind of like having to eat your vegetables. Now, I'm a vegetable guy. I like vegetables, so that's never a problem for me, unless it's a squash, and then I don't want to eat that vegetable. And many of you don't like vegetables, even in any way, shape, and form, even covered in cheese and so on. But when it comes to prayer, we are commanded to pray. We are encouraged to pray. We're told of the blessings of prayer, but yet we struggle with it. And I think the struggle is because of our sin nature. I think the struggle is because we're fallen and we want quick fixes and our minds get distracted by this world. So today we're going to look at David's prayer. Technically, this is a lament. It doesn't feel very lamenty, though, compared to some of the other ones we've seen. And maybe it's because we're starting to get the purpose of a lament psalm. Remember, a lament psalm is, here's the situation I'm in, Lord. There's no hope. I need your help. Come and, fi come and fix it. And as it's being fixed, we learn more about the Lord, and we glorify him more, and we're closer to him. So maybe we're getting it, or maybe this psalm is just different. Either way, we get to look in. We're, we're, we're eavesdropping on David as he is praying. This is not a song, it's a prayer of David. It's the only prayer, only psalm, or uh, writing by David in this entire middle section of the psalms. And so it's here on purpose. So let's look at what this is. So the, the, David's prayer is an appeal to God's mercy in asking for prayer, or asking for his prayers to be answered and for deliverance from his enemies. So that's what David's doing. He's saying, God, be merciful on me. God, have compassion on me. Answer my prayer. Deliver me from my enemies. We don't know which enemies David's talking about. We don't know when this was written. We don't know what was the situation. We know there's plenty to choose from. Countless times, David was running from people who wanted to kill him. And sometimes it was even family members that wanted to kill him. So David has plenty of opportunities for this psalm to apply. But what does it mean for us? 
What does it mean for us? What's our goal for today? So our goal for today is to see God as more than a helper. We want to see God as more than the one we run to when something goes wrong. Absolutely we should. So I'm going to just alleviate that right here and right now. This is not a guilt trip sermon. I'm not going to go up here and all you guys do is ask God for stuff. He's not Santa Claus. Come on. That's not the point of this sermon. The point of the sermon is ask him, but don't stop there. Don't stop there. Continue, continue into that relationship with him. Because then and only then do you see the actual reward, which is not get out of your, your trouble, but get God. See God for who he is. And this deeper relationship is what David is displaying to us here. Because David is in a situation in this psalm that not a single person in this room, and if I'm wrong, come talk to me after the service and tell me you're the one that none of us have ever been in before. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. So we're going to look at God's greatness and his wondrous acts and his, his, his things that he does to show who he is. It's great that he answers our prayers. It's great that he gets us out of trouble. It's great that he does that. But there's so much more to be had. And this psalm shows us that. So we're going to really see two points in here. Uh, and it's kind of the first seven verses are the crying out to God. And then the last from verses 11 to the end is really the relaxing in who God is and understanding who he is. And smack dab in the middle is this picture of God. Verses 8, 9, and 10 lays out this is what God's like. And see, we get that, but we don't go far enough. We stop at verse 10. We get all the, we ask God for stuff and we, we have troubles and we know God will answer. Our theology's right. God will answer us. God will respond. God is the miracle working God. But that's where we stop. We don't go to the next step, which is communion and intimacy and friendship with that said God. So we're going to look at that and see how this goes. So the first thing we see, the first, the first summary of this psalm is verses 1 through 7. And this is where we cry out to the Lord for help in a time of need. We cry out to the Lord for help in a time of need. And isn't it awesome that we have the ability to do this? We have the ability to cry out. We don't have to go through ritual cleanings. We don't have to do certain acts to placate our God, to get him to then listen. He is listening. He is wanting us to cry out to him. So we get permission to do this. Verse 1, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. These first few verses, verses 1 through 4, are a ask or a re request followed by the reason why he's requesting it. And it's a really interesting way to, to ask God. It's not the way we normally do. Usually it's our asks and then we move on to other things. This is, Lord, answer me because I am poor and needy. Lord, answer me because I am faithful. Answer me because I'm in need. And so the, talking to God, this is a communicating with God. This word incline means to bow down, to get close, to come in and hear. And when it says the word Lord there, that is the word Yahweh. So this is the personal name of God. It's not some title. It's saying, Yahweh, listen to me. Yahweh, listen to me. And this poor and needy can have a money component to it, but really what it means is I can't solve my problem. My problem is bigger than me. I need help, and I need help of Yahweh. 
Verse 2, preserve my life for I am godly. Preserve means to protect, and this for I am godly is a kind of a weird translation. It just means I am faithful, or I'm devout, or I have, I have shown up. I am continuously focusing on you, so protect me, Lord. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. So we see that word servant there, and it's a word that it kind of gets glossed over in a lot of our Bibles. We just go right past it. But the king is saying, I serve God. He's saying, I am the one who meets God's needs, not God meeting me, David, the king's needs. We're going to see this three separate times in this psalm, this idea of servant. Verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Be gracious means showing favor. This crying is pleading, and all the day means he's doing it all the time. And then we get this word here, Lord. And in some of your translations, it'll have it all, it'll have a capital L and in lowercase O-R-D. That's the word Adonai, which just means sovereign or master. And so this, this word ties back to that servant. David is saying, I'm not the master. He's the master. I'm the servant. What a picture I mean, David is the most powerful man alive in Israel, and he's saying, no, no, I'm not in charge. God is in charge. What a cool picture. We could use more leaders like that. Verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Gladden. That's That's an awkward word for us. What it means is, make me rejoice, Lord. Make me feel joy. Has anybody prayed that recently? Probably should have. We've had plenty of reasons to not have joy, but to pray to the Lord, Lord, make me joyful, not, hey, have some good things happen so I feel joy. He's saying, make me feel joy. Gladden me. I lift up my soul means I appeal to you. One author says, prayer is weakness leaning heavily on omnipotence. And I like that picture. I like the idea of I can't even get myself to rejoice. I need the omnipotent God of the universe, the one who puts all the stars, who holds the nebulae together to come in and put joy in my heart. Maybe our prayers need to be a little bit more grandiose. And then we get verse 5, which is not fitting the pattern of the first four verses. He says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Right here in the middle of this, asking God, he stops and he says, this is who God is. God, you are like this. All of these requests have been buttressed by David saying, I have a need, I have something else. And then he stops right in the middle and says, but I know who you are. I declare who you are. It's almost as if as he's asking God to do these things, and they're not specific, they're a little more vague than some of the prayers we see in the Psalms, these these vague notions of gladden my heart. He stops and goes, I know you're going to do it because you're good. You're forgiving. You're abounding, which means overflowing with steadfast love, love that does not move. David is modeling for us how to pray. You know, we, we talk formulas, and a few weeks ago, I taught the junior hires up at, at West Lynn when they were meeting for youth group, and we talked about different formulas for prayer, but David blows that all up because he can't help himself. As he's talking about this God, he can't help but stop and declare. And you're like, oh, I couldn't do that. I don't even know what to say. Well, let me tell you, David cheated. He's quoting Exodus 34. 
He's praying the, song, the, the words of the Bible back to God. Here's what Exodus 34 says. You guys know this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And it's not even that he quoted it in a new translation. He's literally using the same Hebrew words. He's saying, this is who God is, and it's because God told us who he is. You want to know how to pray? Read the Bible. The Psalms tell us how to pray. Pray the Psalms back to him. It's the words he's given us. So this is God's character. This is who he is. And David can't help but say it. God, you are this way. And then he gets to his next request. And this should sound familiar because I think many of us pray this to God. I know I have. Lord, listen to me. Listen to me as I plead for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call on you. Answer me. There's this pleading. Give ear to me. I am in trouble. I need help. Now, at this point, what you're probably expecting is something like, we treat God like a genie, and we go to him, and we, we rub the lamp, and God shows up, and we say, here's my request, and then the genie goes back in the lamp until the next time he is needed. And that is maybe how we do it. But understand this, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask God. We just don't do enough of it, and we don't do what comes next after the asking. So don't take my word for this. Let's look at some Bible verses about asking God. See, I don't want you guys to come out of here going, I'm not going to ask God for stuff. I want you to ask God for more, and I want you to pray more to him so you can be where David is at the end of this psalm. And trust me, it's a much better place than where he starts. Verse, uh, psalm 34, verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. And this psalm is saying, do this. Psalm 61, from the end of the earth I call you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Psalm 121, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And this is just scratching the surface. He wants us to ask him, But if we stop at that, if we stop at God as our vending machine of solutions to problems, we are the ones that are missing out. We are the ones that are not getting the full experience of what it is to know God. It's like living with the king and saying, I'll do one meal a month. I'll live in in the castle in the humongous, gorgeous room with servants waiting on me, but I'll only do it once a month once a year, when the king says, I have lavished not only the castle, not only the palace, but me. God wants to lavish himself on us. And we simply go to him for our needs when we should go so much more. So verses 8, and eight 9, and 10, this is who God is grounds our prayers. And we get this right. 
We're not praying to Mother Nature. We're not just praying to the void. We've not gone after some other God somewhere else. We are praying to the God of the Bible. And when we read verses 8, 9, and 10, we would all say, I totally agree. This is who God is. You all know that. But we don't move into that relationship with God like we need. Yes, we need our needs met. Yes, we have things that are painful. And we take those to the Lord. But we must continue into it. You know, if we take the first seven verses of this psalm, it's like answering the first five questions on a 100-question test right and being like, got my A, I'm done. It doesn't work that way. See, God answers our prayers and wants us to ask, and that's just the start of a relationship that he wants with each and every one of us. And that's where we need to get to. That's where this psalm goes. So let's see why we should pray to God. Verse 8, there is none like you among the gods, nor are, there, are they, their works anything like yours. David's boldness, he's saying, this is the God that keeps his word. This is the God that keeps promises. This is the God that's really there. He keeps his word. Verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify in your name. They're going to bow down to the God of the Bible. This God of the Bible is not some local deity. He's the God of every single nation. I see this echoed in the New Testament in Philippians 2 when it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This promise is going to be fulfilled in Christ. All the nations are going to come together. It doesn't matter where they're from. They're going to all bow. Revelation 5, 9, the, the saints in heaven see this. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, we get that. We relish that. We come together and we say, our God is a God of love. There's no other gods. All the nations are going to bow down. He loves us. Awesome. I'm not going to talk to him until I'm in trouble. See, there's the problem is that this God is so great, and, and today, if you come away with anything, I want you to see this God better than when you walked in so that you can't help but pray to him, that you can't help but want to spend time with him. Verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. That word wondrous things in Hebrew means things that are impossible. God does the impossible. God is the God who does the great. John Piper, in writing about this, it, it's just too good. I got to include it. So this is what he says. God's greatness is relevant, utterly relevant for everything in our life. If we saw the greatness of God, we would not be so greedy and covetous. If we saw the greatness of God, our eyes wouldn't look after lustful images and thoughts. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't get as angry at our children so easily. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't pout and get hurt so easily in our marriages. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't worry so much about our looks. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't spend time watching mindless and sordid and defiling television shows. 
If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't get so discouraged with evil and the godlessness of our culture. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't give in to our appetites and overeat in boredom and depression. And there are hundreds of other unforeseen good acts that come from the greatness of God when we grip that. See, David is not just saying these things because it's the, okay, God answered some of my prayers, so I'm going to say this. He believes it, and he wants to get deeper into it. And you can see this in the remaining parts of the psalm. See, David goes on after verse 10 into 11, and he starts wanting a deeper relationship with this God who is trustworthy, this God who does great and impossible things. We should be saying, I need a great God because I have great needs, and my greatest need is I need God. But instead, we go, I want to walk in my way. I want to do my own thing. It's because our hearts are divided. And David understood this because he's going to ask for his heart to be united to God, to be one, to be whole. One author writes, don't just seek the blessing, seek the blesser. See, we, we get the Lord. And this is the point of everything in our lives, good, bad, or neutral, is to drive us to the Lord. And we go anywhere else but One author writes, prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to the will of God. Aligning aligning God's redemptive will, anything and everything can happen in me. The whole person is heightened by this prayer contact. In that contact, I find health for my body, illumination for my mind, moral and spiritual reinforcement. Prayer is time exposure to God. It's being in God's presence and being around him. And just like when you're around somebody who has an accent, after a while you pick up that accent, the idea is to be around God, to pick up being like God. So again, this is, this is not some huge hole that we're going to, oh, I shouldn't ask, I shouldn't bother God. Instead, it's going, let's go deeper. Because if we stop right here, all we've done is we've flipped the servant-master thing on its head. We're using God as our servant, and we are the master, when it should be the exact other way. All the many gifts the Lord wants to give us, and all we need to do is pursue him to get him. Kevin DeYoung writes, we all know we should pray, and we all want to pray, or at least want to want to pray, but we all know from experience that ought to, or should, is never enough to get us to do anything. What's missing is the desire and the element of communion with God. See, David gets this, and we'll see it here in verses 11 through 17. See, David, the next point of the psalm is he says, incline my heart, Lord. So we are to incline our hearts as a servant of the Lord, to walk in his way because of who he is. Throughout this psalm, starting in verse 5, then verses 8, 9, and 10, and now in verse 15, we're going to see he's all about just thinking on and desiring relationship with God. And David's focus changes. Some of those early prayer requests were probably to a specific need. Now, he's not wanting those needs met. He's wanting the one who meets the needs. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Why? So we can get out of problems? No, it says that I may walk in your truth. Translation, I obey you. Unite my heart to fear your name. He's back to that Yahweh word again. He's calling on God personally and saying, I want to obey you. Help me to do it. 
I want my heart united to yours. Fix me. Oswald Chambers, that's for you, Frank, said, keep praying in order to get a perfect understanding of God himself. See, David understood his heart was divided. He wanted a united heart. We think back about David, and yeah, he was the king, and he had so much stuff, but by comparison, you have more. So as important as this was for David, yeah, he's got to manage a kingdom, and he's got servants and soldiers and all this other stuff. You have all that same thing and more. We have distractions aplenty. We have jobs. We have children. We have families. We have new requirements for this and for that. We have so many things to be juggling. And our hearts are divided, just like David, even more so now. There's whole industries about dividing our hearts, about distracting us from what really matters. So we have to pray this. Charles Spurgeon says, prayer is a thermometer of grace. If you get grace, if you understand mercy, it will register. But if it isn't, if you won't, you won't pray. It shows you don't get it. Verse 12, I give thanks to you. So he says, here's my next ask. Here's my next request. Teach me your ways. Unite my heart. I give thanks to you. He goes right into thanks. Oh, Lord, my God, with my whole heart. Look at that. One verse later, his heart is unified. His whole heart, I will glorify him. One author said, when you have a genuine knowledge of God, the only appropriate attitude, in fact, the only sane attitude is one of worship and one of obedience. And see, that's where we are to be. As soon as David sees God for what he is, he can't help but love him, can't help but wanting to be around him, can't help but worship. Again, Kevin DeYoung says this, it's not enough to screw up our resolve, set the alarm 15 minutes earlier, mumble through a few more minutes of prayer so we can pat ourselves on the back and feel good. We need to understand that time spent in prayer is time with our maker, our defender, our redeemer, and ultimately our friend. Communion is the goal, not crossing off a checklist. See, the Puritans got this. Thomas Goodwin said, mutual communion is the soul of true friendship. You are a friend with someone when you spend time with them. You are a friend when you share conversations. There's a sweetness to it. The Bible says, yes, we are to worship God, but we're also to have communion with him. This is our corporate getting together with God. We should be buffeting that and strengthening it by our individual time with God. True friendship, for friendship is maintained and kept up by visits. Not about urgent business, but about friendly relationship. And this is what God wants with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. It's not to be a transactional thing. Instead, it's to be a relationship. I have a past student who calls me up from time to time, but he only calls me when something bad has happened. Usually, it's something he did. And so I would go months and even years without hearing from him. And I would text him regularly. I'd pray for him regularly. And I'd text him, and I'd hear nothing. And then I'd text him, and I'd hear nothing. I'd even call him. He wouldn't even answer. And then all of a sudden, I pick up my phone some random day, and I see his name on there, and I go... Oh boy, what'd you do this time? (laughs) Because really, he didn't want relationship with me. Yeah, I'd been his teacher and his coach, and he liked me. I even did his wedding, right? But the only time he wanted me in his life was when something wrong, something bad was happening. 
And so this is not where David's at. He's moved past that. He's recognized that by having God in his life, when those needs come up, he is ready. He is prepared because he knows God's there with him and he's got a friendship with him. Look at verse 13. For great is your steadfast love. He's now declaring this because he's seen it, not just because he's read it, but because he knows it. And look at the reason why. You've delivered my soul from Sheol. Delivered means pulled out. Sheol here is representing the place where dead people would go. And so he's saying is, you've brought me to life. You've given me life. This is not a literal he died and came back, but it's saying, I was living for myself in that divided life. You brought me back. See, this is just one of the many gifts that the Lord wants to give us. There's a story of an evangelist who imagined going to heaven one day, and he, he was walking through heaven, and, and the angel Gabriel is walking him through, and he goes, hey, Gabe, what's that building over there? And Gabriel goes, you don't want to see that building. It'll depress you. And the guy's like, I'm in heaven. What, what? Can't be depressed. Why don't you show it to me? And he goes, I don't think you want to see it. He goes, no, come on, show it to me. So he opened up the doors, and he said, look, and it was wall-to-wall presence wrapped ready to be delivered, floor after floor. And the man was like, that's awesome. Gabe, Gabriel goes, yeah, except for no one ever asked for them to be delivered. See, that's where we are. The Lord's greatest gift that he has for us is not getting us out of our trials. Those are amazing. Sometimes he does, other times he doesn't. But the gift that he wants to give every one of us is more of himself, and then more of himself, and then more and more. This is the picture of what prayer is about. And I'll show it to you. Verse 14. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. They do not set it before them. He is surrounded by people that want to murder him, by people who have no belief in God. They hate God. They want nothing to do with God. He is being surrounded for violence. It's even more intense than the the words there. This is a terrible spot that David's in. Way worse than where he was in verses 6 and 7, where he says, I got some problems. Come fix them. He's now, I am surrounded by insolent men. It's safe to say we have not been here. We have not been in this situation. And so our gut response might be exactly where David was in verses 6 and 7, which is, Lord, get me out of here. But David, because of the progression that this psalm has taken, which is gone from just asking God for his needs to be met to going to know God, David's response is not, get me out of here. It's, give me more of you. What a crazy response to, I'm surrounded by people that want to kill me. Look at verse 15. But you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then verse 16, turn to me and be gracious. But we'll get to that in a second. He says, Lord, you are gracious. So he's surrounded by people. And instead of giving God pointers on how to get them out, you know, I need some Navy SEALs, I need some guns, I need, you know, can you just send down angels on fire and burn these guys up? Instead, he goes, God, I'm reminded in this moment of how great you are and how merciful you are. How foreign is that to us? 
See, he goes right back to the Bible, Exodus 34, that north star of who God is. Gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Now see, there's, there's this, this theme that's been throughout our psalm that we kind of miss because the English language is kind of lame. And, and, and the word gracious has popped up several times in here. And, and probably a better translation here is merciful. To, to bestow mercy, to give someone the gift of mercy. And this is one of those words that we, we kind of m- mess up a little bit. We don't quite get it. We, we think it's like grace, but it's not, but then we kind of just use it back and forth. We all like grace. We sing about how amazing it is. I don't see any amazing mercy song. We came close today. Thanks, Taylor, for adding that in there. But we got this idea of mercy. So what is mercy? Because he, if you look back over the psalm, he mentions graciousness, being gracious, four separate times. And then he says merciful. So like right here, verse 15, God, you are merciful with a side of mercy, with extra mercy. What does this mean? What does it mean that God's merciful to us? Well, let me tell you. I'll tell you a story and then we'll explain it. There once was a mother who went to Napoleon, the ruler of most of Europe at this time. Her, her, her son had gotten in trouble again. She went to Napoleon and said, let him go free. Napoleon said, nope, you know, justice demands that he get punished. He messed up twice. He's done. She goes, I'm not pleading for justice. I want mercy. And Napoleon goes, but he doesn't deserve mercy. And she goes, it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. Mercy is not deserving it. And Napoleon went, okay, I'll give him mercy. And the son went free. See, this mercy that we have is God's long-suffering. It's God's putting up with us. But even more than that, it's the fact that we don't get what we deserve. According to what the Bible says, and according to what you all know if you really think about it, is that we don't deserve anything from God. We mess up more than we ever succeed. We are sinners who are inventing new ways to sin and thinking we're getting away with it. God's mercy is his compassion. It's his kindness. It flows out of his deep heart for us to say, not guilty. He extends mercy to us in ways we can't even imagine. It's God's infinite kindness and unending favor towards fallen and sinful creatures like us. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is we mix mercy and grace up. Okay, you're going, okay, pastor, this is a theological thing, whatever. But get this. If we have a coin that is the gospel, one side is mercy, one side is grace, you can't have the gospel without both. See, grace is getting things that we have not deserved. We do not deserve, right? So getting to go to heaven, we don't deserve that. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve hell. We're not getting that. And so these two have to be together because if we have one without the other, we don't have a gospel because the gospel is you are wretched. You deserve hell. But Jesus came and took your place and gifted to you, not earned, gifted to you eternal life. And when these concepts get blurred, we have a hard time with it. We, we kind of lump everything into God's grace box. But and ultimately, we need to understand that his mercy is just as powerful. It is just as amazing. This, this psalm is a thermometer for our understanding of mercy. Let's see this in the Bible. 2 Peter 3.9 is a picture of God's mercy. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. 
as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is that picture that that God is so merciful, not just he forgives you of your sin, but he waits around for you to ask for it. So anybody wonder why God hasn't just come and just stopped this craziness we're going through in the world right now? Why? Because he's still got sheep that he's going to bring in. So each day when we wake up and it's like, oh, another crazy day, we go, another day that God's bringing them to him. Because that's where we're at. There's not a better picture, though, of mercy than Psalm 103. And I, the Lord is so good. I'm I'm reading through the Bible, and it brings in random psalms. And this psalm came on my sermon prep day, and I was just like, yes, Lord. Here's what it says. The Lord is merciful and gracious. There it is, Psalm 34 again. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You hear it? He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. And here it is. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions, our sins from us. As a father shows compassion to children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. So God's mercy is so vast that you go as far as the east is from the west, and east and west never meet. You can't go west and end up going east. You just keep going west and keep going east. It's so far that that's the best expression he can come up with. See, many of us, we love the fact that God is merciful. We love it, but we don't love the merciful God. We gotta get past loving his gifts and loving the giver. God is to be loved more than his mercies. Verse 16, we see this with David. Remember, he's surrounded by people that want to kill him. And he says, Lord, turn to me and be gracious. Well, David, what about the guys that wanna kill you? David's going, don't worry about them. I want more of God. Give me your strength. Give it to me, your servant, and save the son of your maidservant. Maidservant, that's an allusion to Israel. He's saying, give it to Israel, give it to me, give me your strength, but give me more of you. Be more gracious. Instead of appealing to his enemy's destruction, he appeals to God's mercy. He doesn't ask for them to be wiped out. He asks for more of God. That's such a change, but it all, becomes, it all comes from the change from verse 10 to verse 11 when he goes from this abstract that God is good to going, I want to know this God even more. Teach me your ways. Unite my heart. And then in verse 12 when he says, my heart is now whole, he sees the world rightly. What can these insolent men do to him? We are immortal until the Lord calls us home. They can't touch us until it's time. And David gets that, and he understands that God is what he needs. Look at Philippians 4. You're all familiar with this verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in, by, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word prayer and the word supplication. Supplication is asking God. Prayer is talking to God. 
So he's saying, you want the anxiety to go away, you ask him to take it away, but then you talk and you commune with God. This is the picture of what David is doing here. And that peace and that getting rid of anxiousness is not necessarily an answer to prayer. It's a talking to God and seeing things the way he does. And that's the answer to the prayer. That peace that surpasses everything comes not only from asking God to fix your problems, but going to God and knowing God. Verse 17, he says, Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate you may see and be put to shame because of you. Lord, you have helped me and comforted me. I don't know what David's asking for here. He's asking for some sort of sign that God says, yes, I got it. Maybe it was something supernatural. Maybe it was something small. Maybe it was just a still, small voice as David is waiting quietly. But for us, we have a sign. And the sign happened nearly 2,000 years ago. Started in a manger, but finished on a cross. This sign is that Christ came. I mean, it says it. Behold, the sign is, behold, a virgin will be with child. This is answered for us. We don't look forward that Jesus is going to come and, and God's mercy will be bestowed on us. He's already come. The mercy's just waiting. It's wrapped and ready to be taken. John Calvin said, the only haven of safety is in the mercy of God as manifested in Christ, in whom every part of our salvation is made complete. If we are to be saved, we need mercy, not justice. Salvation is always the undeserved mercy of God. We can tap into that today. It's never God's inflexible justice. Instead, it's his mercy. It's his love. If the Lord ever gave us what we deserved, we'd be in eternal damnation. But praise be to God that because of Christ's willing sacrifice on the cross, we get mercy. We are bathed in mercy. And this is the God who wants relationships with each and every one of you. And he wants it through prayer. It is the tender compassion of God towards us when we are in danger, when we are in stress, that wants to lead us to more and more of that compassion. He has unending gifts of himself for each of us. Let's not miss it because we're too worried about our needs being met. So today we're going to observe communion. And, and this is our sign of remembrance. This is our opportunity to think back. So this is God answering David's plea. He answered it in Christ. We are now looking backwards and we're looking and saying, this is the Christ who died and rose for me. This is the sign that God has shown us favor. This is the sign of his mercy that is new for us every single day. So as we do this, examine your hearts. If you don't know of this God of mercy, start the communication right now. Confess your sins and make allow God to make things right with him. For the rest of us, we got some communicating to do. We've got a friend who wants to be closer, who wants to be with each and every one of us. So let's use this time of communion to commune with God, to become more related to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so good that you are not a God that is far away, that you are right here with us. It is so good that you are a God who wants 
to answer our prayers, who wants to give us many good gifts. And Lord, you are a God that wants to give the gift of himself. So many of us, and myself not even excluded a little bit, are flopping around trying to figure out what's going on when the one who's in charge of it all is just waiting to talk to me. Lord, help us to see that and help our hearts to be broken that we have not tapped into you like we should. So I pray that you would start that in us right now. As we observe what your son did on the cross, I pray that you would help us to see you rightly and want more and more of you. In your name, amen.